This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. Ableism is any discrimination against disabled people, but it is much broader than that. It's a system that places value on people's bodies and minds and creates a hierarchy of humanity. So ableism, I think, is often difficult for people to really see how deeply it is interwoven in the tapestry of how we talk about bodies and minds, because it is really tied up in so many of the myths around individualism. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. Our guest today is Dr. Amy Kenny. She's a disabled scholar whose research focuses on medical and bodily themes in literature. She's a Shakespeare lecturer at the University of California, Riverside, and is on the editorial board of Shakespeare Bulletin. Dr. Kenny is a member and scribe of the Freedom Road Global Writers Group hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper and has written for Sojourners about disability in the church. She serves on the Mayor's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Task Force in her home city, coordinates support for people experiencing homelessness, and is co-launching Jubilee Homes OC, a permanent supportive housing initiative in her local community. Today, we're talking about her recent book, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, Disability Justice in the Church. Dr. Amy Kenny, welcome to Things Not Seen. Well, thank you for having me, David. I'm excited to be here. Well, I want to begin both for your sake and for the sake of our listeners with some terminology, because as I have navigated these spaces and these conversations over the years, I have heard different terms. I've heard differently abled. I've heard disabled. I've heard other kinds of ways of making euphemisms about the language of another person's abilities or inabilities. And so I'm wanting to really give you the option here to begin to set the stage for us by me asking, when you think about yourself and you describe yourself, what are the terms that you most prefer to use about yourself? Yeah, there's so many euphemisms, aren't there? There's special needs, differently abled. You're not handicapped, you're handy capable. And it gets a little silly, I think, with how Often people are trying to avoid even the word disabled. I refer to myself as a disabled woman. I do this to reclaim the word and to shun the shame associated with the word. There's a lot of debate over whether we should use people-first language, which is people with disabilities, or identity-first language, disabled people. And I use disabled people for myself because I'm not a euphemism. I'm not a metaphor. 
I'm not ashamed to be disabled. And also because it just doesn't fit in my lived experience to say I live with a disability. It's not my roommate. It's part of my lived experience. So I am disabled and unashamedly so. Well, thank you for taking a moment to clarify that. And I think that's really where I want to begin this conversation generally. And that is, you began speaking about your experience. I heard you saying in that, that it's not your intention here to be making a universal claim about all persons who live with any type of disability or how they might describe themselves. But you're saying, this is how I think about myself. I don't think about my disability as a roommate. It's part of who I am. I really was struck throughout your book, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, with the ways in which the centrality of holding on to one's story is so vital to keep at the center of this conversation. Because as I'm understanding it, as you write it and convey your experiences in the book, oftentimes what happens is someone else shoulders you out of the way and begins telling you your story for you or re-narrating your story back to yourself. Now, these are my words, not yours. When I'm saying this to you, does that sound like, have I got it right about what your experience has been? And can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. That's a great way of putting it. I think everyone deserves to be the protagonist in their own story. And that's just not the case with how disabled people are treated. We are often viewed as villains or side characters or really just objects in someone else's savior narrative. So I have people approach me all the time and even without my consent, pray over me or move me from one side of the room to another or play with my mobility aids touch me, give me potions and curatives. And centering my story in the book is one way of saying, this is my lived experience. This is my experience as a disabled woman in church spaces. And I can't speak for every disabled person because we're 26% of the population in this country and 15% of the global population. But I can share my story. And hopefully it's through the vulnerability of that that people come to understand some of what it is like being disabled in churches. And Dr. Kenny, I want to make sure that my listeners have heard this clearly. So when you are in public spaces, if I've heard you correctly, and even when you are in church spaces, you have had the experience of people entering your personal space, touching you, even physically relocating you or applying things to your body for the sake of their comfort, not yours. Now, when I say it that way, am I over-dramatizing it or have I got it right? Or do I not have it dramatic enough in your understanding? That's exactly right. It's as though my body becomes public property. I am an object, not a subject. I am something that can be moved, manipulated, erased, physically altered in some way for the purpose of benefiting someone else's idea of disability being in need of eradication. It's as though I am no longer a human being or someone who bears the image of the divine, but rather that I am an object in someone else's narrative. And and this, you said it so clearly and beautifully just a moment ago, to return yourself to being the protagonist in your own story. And we'll get into all of this, but maybe let me just take a quick moment and reintroduce you. Folks, if you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're very happy today to be speaking with Dr. Amy Kenny. She's a disabled scholar whose research focuses on medical and bodily themes in literature, and she is a Shakespeare lecturer at the University of California, Riverside. Today, we're talking about her recent book, and it's an incredible book. I can't recommend it highly enough. 
enough. It's called My Body Is Not a Prayer Request, Disability Justice in the Church. Well, as a way of continuing to set the stage here, I want to make sure that my listeners understand a particular logistical fact that I had known about in the corner of my mind, but it really came front and center to me as I was reading your book, My Body Is Not a Prayer Request. And that is in 1990, the United States under George Bush passed the Americans with Disabilities Act. And the two things that I learned from your book that I guess I had known distantly, but it never really occurred to me is one, the ADA has no enforcement capability. It is simply a list of desiderata, of desires of what we would like public spaces to be like, but no one is going to check those public spaces. So that's piece number one. Piece number two, and this really blew my mind, is that from the very first moment that the Americans with Disabilities Act was put into law in 1990, churches have been exempt. Can you talk to us about, first of all, the exemption of churches? How did that come to pass, and how does that affect people with disabilities? Churches fought against ADA in the lead-up to it being signed into law because they said it was infringing on their religious freedom and it was too costly to implement. So basically, it's too costly to include disabled people. And as a result of that, churches, religious schools still do not have to abide by ADA. ADA is a floor, not a ceiling. It gives us cab cuts and accessible bathrooms and gives disabled people access to public space. But it could go a lot further. And as you say, there's no real enforcement. But it was a big win for the disability community, but not so in the churches. And even now, there is this segregation of disabled people from church spaces because churches are not legally required to include us. So it's not happenstance or accident that when I go into a church, there is a lot of chaos around my body and a lot of questions about sin and accusations launched my way. Because from the very start, churches have fought against disabled people even being included in their church spaces. Well, and I want to just linger there for a moment. It's not simply that churches ignored the ADA. What you are saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that even as the legislation was coming forward to become a law, they were already mounting arguments against it, defenses against it, saying it would be too costly and in, even in some cases that it would be an undue burden on their free practice of religion. Now, do I understand that correctly as well? That's right. And I cite some sources in my book showing who's fighting against it and where that's coming from and how that actually led to the law specifically excluding churches, faith communities, religious schools. And this leads to one of the things that I thought was so masterful in your book, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, because on the one hand, you're educating readers and you're bringing readers into your story. But on another hand, while you're doing that, you're also taking what are some of these, for want of a better word, and I'm going to scare quote this, even though listeners can't see me making the kind of air quotes with my fingers, the kind of theological arguments against including disability, like that you just mentioned, that this will be an undue burden on our religious practice. You take those and you take the biblical foundations from which those who would make those arguments might find their ammunition. And you begin to reread those stories with us, and you begin to reimagine what it would be like if 
disability was not some aberration in God's design, but rather if disability was perhaps central to the gospel itself. We'll begin to dig into this as our conversation continues, but I really want to ask you about that process of reimagining. As you're doing this with your readers, inviting them to not only share in your story, but maybe share in God's story of disability, what were you feeling and what were you hoping would be the reception on the part of the readers who got this book and began to come into this story with you? My hope would be that non-disabled folks would really have a meeting with themselves and get real with how they have blamed the Bible for some of that bigotry when it comes to disabled people. There's a lot of discomfort and fear and anxiety around disability. And often I think that fear is perpetuated by those what if questions. What if it happens to me? What if it happens to my loved one? What does that mean? And I would hope that reading my story, reading my experience with faith and church and God and scripture, that that would invite others to really rethink, oh, some of these assumptions about disability are really just from our ableist perspectives and not from scripture itself. Disabled characters are at the forefront of the work that God chooses to do with humanity in scripture. And we say all the time in church communities that everyone is made in God's image. So it just doesn't make sense to then say, ooh, caveat, except disabled people, they're somehow not made in God's image, or they have less of God's image. That doesn't make sense. And so hopefully it would be an invitation for people to really get real with, even though we proclaim that's what we believe, we have also absorbed the core spiritual lie of ableism, and we have put down disabled people systemically and interpersonally and especially in churches, and that needs to be completely revolutionized. And as we're moving towards our first break, you just used a term or actually a pair of terms, ableism and ableist. And so I wonder if on the way out of this particular segment of the conversation, you you gave us a definition within that answer, but I want to make sure it's clear for the listeners. When we use these terms, ableist, ableism, can you tell us what you're meaning by those terms? Ableism is any discrimination against disabled people, but it is much broader than that. It's a system that places value on people's bodies and minds and creates a hierarchy of humanity. We can see it connected to racism, colonialism, transphobia, our ideas of intelligence and productivity and colonization and normalcy. So ableism, I think, is often difficult for people to really see how deeply it is interwoven in the tapestry of how we talk about bodies and minds, because it is really tied up in so many of the myths around individualism. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Amy Kenny. She is a disabled scholar whose research focuses on medical and bodily themes in literature. She's a Shakespeare lecturer at the University of California, Riverside, and is on the editorial board of Shakespeare Bulletin. She's a member and scribe of the Freedom Road Global Writers Group, hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper, and has written for Sojourners about disability in the church. Today, we're talking about her recent book, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, Disability Justice in the Church. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. 
Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these kinds of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today, we're delighted to welcome to the show Dr. Amy Kenny. She's a disabled scholar whose research focuses on medical and bodily themes in literature. She's a Shakespeare lecturer at the University of California, Riverside, and is on the editorial board of the Shakespeare Bulletin. Dr. Kenny is a member and scribe of the Freedom Road Global Writers Group hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper, and she's written for Sojourners about disability in the church. We're talking today about her recent book, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, Disability Justice in the Church. Well, Dr. Kenny, my listeners will recall that sometimes I like to frame conversations in odd places. And so I'd like to begin this segment by drawing you back to a time when you had a really bad pain in your stomach and you were trying to convince everyone around you. Your husband certainly believed you, but as you began to talk to physicians and nurses, they were all saying, oh, it's just, it's nothing. You were having a really difficult time convincing people that you were really in pain. And I wonder if you can take us back to that time. Tell us what was going on, and maybe then we can begin to talk about why they didn't listen. But let's start, first of all, with what was going on. Yeah, I don't know if that's one of my happiest memories, but it's certainly worth exploring. Uh, my appendix had burst. It was actually leaking fluid into my abdomen, and I was vomiting and had a lot of pain in my right side and all of the kind of telltale signs of appendicitis. And I was told by the physician in the emergency room that it was probably just a stomach flu. It was probably just a bug. It was no big deal. And I pleaded with them to run some tests. He continued to brush us off. My husband pleaded with them to run some tests. They finally did, but in a pat you on the head, want to get rid of you kind of way, very condescending, very pitying. And when the tests came back and revealed that I did have an infection, and then of course, when they rushed me into surgery hours later, then they scolded me that I hadn't told them I was in very much pain, even though of course I did. And I think at the heart of that is what studies bear out, which is that women's pain is not believed. This is particularly true for Black women and all women of color. Myself as a white woman was not believed in this scenario. And I have never seen any of these studies include the numbers for disabled women. So I'm not sure how that interacts with the doctor's assumptions. Although we do, of course, know that it's 90% of doctors who believe that disabled people have a worse quality of life. And that has to have some sort of impact on how they're understanding pain as well. Well, first of all, I want to acknowledge my gratefulness for your trust in letting me take you back to what must be a difficult memory. And you've added something in now to the conversation that I hadn't anticipated. And so I want to explore that. But 
where I had thought that I would go from there is you really talk about this in several parts of your book, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, the fact that pain is erased or ignored in the medical establishment, but also the very recognition of disability is oftentimes erased and ignored or completely just pushed away by not only the medical field, but also other institutions in our society that are supposed to even be there to accommodate and help those who are disabled. And I I wonder if first we can talk about that, but then I really want to move on to what you've introduced, which is this question of intersectionality. But let's start there about the erasure of disability, the inability for people to believe you when you present them even documentation of your disability. I call them disability doubters in my book because folks are constantly coming up to me questioning whether I am disabled. If I park in the accessible spot that I have the legal right to park in, someone will come up and say, you're too young to be disabled or you can't park here. Or people will make jokes about me being disabled or give me a lot of paperwork or accuse me of faking. And it's as though every cane becomes a con. Of course, Who's faking? And to get what? (laughs) This is such a small percentage of people, yet that doesn't stop this idea that there are so many people out there trying to gain the system in some way. And I connect that to doubting Thomas and this idea that Thomas is saying to the women who have witnessed Jesus resurrected, no, I don't believe that. I'll believe it when I see it. And there's lots of gaslighting and doubt and disbelief there. And of course, The resurrected Christ is disabled and comes and says, put your hands in my side, look at my wounds, the disabled body that is part of our redemption. And also, I think that's a way of really thinking about how there's this demand on disabled people to constantly prove that we are disabled enough and prove that we are worthy of accommodations. And both of those are really toxic ideas. We should live in a system where everybody mind is valued and receives whatever accommodations they need and has their access needs met, regardless of anyone else's opinion on those access needs. And, and that is something that call for equal access and equal care and equal support rings out throughout your book, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, and I'm sure is going to ring out through this conversation as well. But I want to return quickly to something that you gestured towards, and I want to make sure our listeners are picking up on it. So you talked about the fact that not only because your disabled body was presenting to the medical professionals, you weren't believed, but you also mentioned the fact that your body, your woman body was not being believed. And that draws me back to what we were saying before the first break about ableism and the placing of a hierarchy on different types of humanity. I'm very aware that the medical establishment My training was in philosophy. In both the medical establishment and in philosophy, the kind of ideal case is the young white male. That is the discourse center of philosophical talk, and it's the discourse center of medical talk. And when we move away from that, we get different medical outcomes. Now, these are my words, not yours. But am I understanding that it's not simply a matter of disabled people are treated worse in the medical system, but that there are other intersections that can affect the ability and availability of medical outcomes? And would you be willing to say more about that if I've got it right? Or please feel free to correct me if I've got it wrong. Definitely. And I think this is why it's so important to be centering people who are multiply marginalized. So we should be following the lead 
of Black trans women who are disabled. And we should be making sure that we are creating systems, medical systems, academic systems, philosophical systems, right? All of these systems that are centering the access needs of them so that everyone can thrive. There's no liberation that includes hierarchy. There's no liberation that allows for one person to get free and another is still caught within the system. This is what co-flourishing is about, allowing for us to think about intersectionality and to make sure that those of us who hold both privilege and marginalized identities are thinking about the interplay of those in every interaction. You just used a term, and I'd love for you to define it. What is co-flourishing? Co-flourishing is what I imagine new creation is. Co-flourishing is a system, a world where we all thrive. And the we here, of course, is disabled folks and non-disabled folks and everyone. But also it is the community of creation. It is allowing for our flourishing as humanity without harming the earth, without harming one another, without creating those hierarchical systems that we've been discussing. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Amy Kenny. She is a disabled scholar whose research focuses on medical and bodily themes in literature, and she's a Shakespeare lecturer at the University of California, Riverside. Today, we're talking about her incredible recent book, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, Disability Justice in the Church. I want to turn now, and you've begun to gesture in that direction, but I really want to bring it to the fore in the conversation, the kind of theological themes and the biblical themes that come up in your book. And one of the claims that you make is that we are liberated and that our theology is liberated when we begin to reimagine Jesus not in the kind of perfection of physicality, but rather Jesus as the disabled body. And I wonder if you can talk to my listeners a little bit about what is it like to shift to a disabled Jesus. We have this idea that perfection is a 26-year-old Baywatch body that's in slow-mo and it's what you dream of on your vision board, not what is lived reality for so many people. And that, of course, is wrapped up in these ideas of ableism, centering, thinness, whiteness, able-bodiedness. And that's just not what we see with Jesus' resurrection or in scripture. Jesus' resurrected body is scarred. And I don't think this is just a teeny scratch that you have to get out your glasses to see. He says, put your hand in my side, see my wounds. I think that they are large, disabling wounds. And it is his disabled body that is the only example of the imperishable form that is talked about in scripture. I take a lot of comfort in that, partly because we don't have to strive to be something that we are not. No, doesn't matter how hard I try, I'm not going to be not disabled. But also I take comfort in that because the co-suffering Christ that is with us is not after our perfection. We're not after us becoming white, thin, non-disabled, all of these norms that ableism holds up. The disabled body is the mark of our redemption. And that gives me a lot of comfort and allows me to be a disabled human. 
I, I'm so taken with this vision of what it's going to be like in the resurrection. But I'm also struck, and you talk about this in your book, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, that there are some who will then say, oh, yes, and Jesus will be the only imperfect being in the hereafter. All the rest of us, whatever you've got, it will be erased, and you will be, again, that Baywatch body. And I wonder if you can speak so that my listeners will understand about when you've encountered this kind of move. What do you think is going on there when someone says to you, oh, you know, your leg, which doesn't work the way that the narratives of perfection would tell us that it should work, that'll be fixed. And then you'll be, then you'll be whole, then you'll be right. Talk to me about where you think that narrative comes from and how you react to that narrative. Well, I just run them over with my wheelchair and then I move on with my day. (laughs) Yeah. I think that comes from spiritual bypassing this idea that if you can just push things into some magical threshold of heaven or new creation, you don't have to actually deal with it now. So if disability is going to be erased in some afterlife, you don't have to dismantle ableism here and now because you can just pray and someone can feel better about becoming non-disabled in the hereafter. I think it also comes from a place of fear that often people want a promise that they will get their idea of perfection if they are a good person or if they are faithful enough. And that's just not what we see in scripture. If you're looking for a charmed, easy life, you've come to the wrong book. And I think how it feels as a disabled woman to be part of a community that is celebrating your erasure, that is singing songs about how there will be, quote, no lame in heaven because in Jesus's presence will be healed and whole, end quote. That's dangerous because it feels squidgy, you know, just on the feeling of it. But also, it's deeply unsettling. If you can't imagine heaven without disabled people, Jesus can't be there. And if Jesus is the only one who's disabled in heaven, where are we getting that? How does that make sense? It's as though we have to erase 26% of this country's population in order for folks to create what they view as heaven. That sounds a lot like eugenics to me. Well, and I want to make sure that this is airtightly connected for my listeners, because we're talking about a kind of theological erasure. So you're in a worship space and you hear, as you just referenced, that line from a praise song that says, there'll be no lame anymore because Jesus will heal and make them whole. But then we walk out of that worship space into a city that is built with curbs and stairs and that is built for sighted people and is built for hearing people. And so it's not simply a matter of some inconvenient hymnody, but it is an entire physical and social space which is built as if these people don't exist and that the message is maybe you shouldn't exist. And you use the word eugenics to sort of tie it all together. When I make these kind of structural comparisons and draw those lines to the hymns and say there's eugenics haunting behind all of this, is that too strong? Or am I picking up the threads that you are weaving together here? I don't think that's too strong at all. I think what you're naming that is the social model of disability, that the environment disables people, that it is disability is not just a physical or mental impairment. That's the medical model. It is that societies are built for people who are not disabled. And so that's what we consider normal. So in my case, if there was a ramp instead of stairs, it wouldn't be difficult using a wheelchair to get around. Now, the social model 
like all models, is incomplete. It doesn't work for every single disability, such as chronic pain and things like that. But it's important to have that framework to think about how even the way that we set up society centers non-disabled people. I think also what we're missing in this eugenics erasure of disabled people in new creation is that disability is a culture. It's a culture with its own languages and practices and heroes and histories. It's an embodied experience that is uniquely creative because we live in a world not made for us. So when we're thinking about that revelation image of every culture and every nation and every tongue worshiping, that I think should include disabled people because disabled people have our own languages and cultures. Well, and as we're moving towards our next break, I want to make sure that we get this part in too, because some listeners will say, well, yeah, all this sounds great and changing our society sounds wonderful, utopian, pie in the sky, whatever. But I read my Bible and Jesus is just healing lame people and curing blind people. And so Jesus doesn't want you to be lame. Jesus doesn't want you to be blind. That's the gospel. Now, I'm not telling you anything that you haven't heard before, and I'm saying it in a kind of caricaturish way, but I understand that you've heard it not as a kind of caricature or an illustration, but it has actually been presented to you as a genuine, legitimate, theological rebuttal to what, what you've just said. So I wonder if you can talk to us about those stories and how you think about those healing narratives in the New Testament. I'll talk about the one in John 9 in particular, because that's the one I spend a lot of time in my book talking about. And this is the one where the disciples are questioning, well, who sinned, this person who was born blind or his parents? And Jesus says, nope, neither of them sinned. He is blind so that God's work can be revealed. After this man receives his sight, which is in the first seven or so verses, The chapter goes on for about 40 more verses talking about what happens in society, how the community rejects this man once he is given sight, how everyone treats him in this really horrific way. And then at the end, he has this moment of reflection with Jesus of realizing that Jesus is the son of man. And I think that's a really crucial passage for a lot of reasons. One is Jesus really flatly says no to the idea of disabled people being inherently sinful or extra sinful somehow. But also I think it's really important because the chapter itself isn't that interested in the sight giving. It's more interested in healing. And I draw a distinction in my book between curing and healing. Curing is physical, rapid, usually pretty individualistic, and it seeks to eliminate disease or some sort of illness. Healing is much richer. It's messy. It's complex. It takes time. It connects someone with God, with community. It restores their belovedness. It restores their wholeness. And I think too often churches have been focused on curing because they want a quick fix and they want a pill. And really, I think that we're called to do the really slow and messy work of healing, which is much harder and it just takes time. 
And I think in the next segment, we'll pick up on what you were just saying about curing and healing and go a little deeper in it. But before we go out to break right now, I want to just ask one final question about this particular story, because you mentioned the fact that after the cure takes place, after the blind man can now see in this story, you say there's 35 or 40 verses of the man still suffering because he still is being forced into somebody else's set of stories about him. Now, that draws us back to what we were saying earlier, but I wonder if you can talk about that aspect of this as well, the fact that the stories that we tell about disabled people can be as disabling as any physical limitations that they may have. Now, those are my words, not yours. How would you say it differently, or how, or what do you think about that? Most of the disabled people that we see in TV and movies of villains, Darth Vader, Dr. Poison. But beyond those horrible examples, we also have a type of character that essentially is there to show that they are better off dead than disabled. And this is something that people say to my face all the time. I'd rather die than live in your body, or I don't know how you do it. I would die if I had what you have. And a lot of that comes to us directly from TV and movies that portray disability in that way. There are very few examples of disabled characters who are thriving or have complex lives, who are just the protagonist of their own stories without having a cure or a kill-off narrative. I think also what's really telling about this is that we see so many non-disabled actors playing disability as a type of archetype, as a type of dressing up, reducing disability to a prop or to a device. And all of that's really harmful because if you have been segregated from disability in your school, in your workplace, in your church, if you don't have disabled friends, then the only disabled people that you come in regular contact with are in these narratives. And so everyone's idea of disability then has been morphed into something really tragic or villainous instead of treating us just as human beings. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Amy Kenny. She's a disabled scholar whose research focuses on medical and bodily themes in literature. She's a Shakespeare lecturer at the University of California, Riverside, and is on the editorial board of Shakespeare Bulletin. Today, we're talking about her recent book, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, Disability Justice in the Church. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Dr. Amy Kenny. She's a disabled scholar whose research focuses on medical and bodily themes in literature. She's a Shakespeare lecturer at the University of California, Riverside, and is on the editorial board of Shakespeare Bulletin. Today, we're talking about her recent and excellent book, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, Disability Justice in the Church. Well, in the last segment, we were talking about the idea of the disabled Christ and how that can be theologically liberating and allows us to rearrange some of our expectations. 
But I also want to pick up something else that you talk about in your book, My Body is Not a Prayer Request. I want to ask this in two passes. One is the idea that God's self is disabled, but also that disability is not some aberration, not the result of a fall, but instead could be part of God's divine plan. So let's start there. How is disability not something that is part of the fallenness of the world, but rather is part of God's divine plan in your understanding? God takes credit for disability to Moses. God says, who made people deaf and blind and takes credit for that, not out of shame or embarrassment or even that was a bit of a whoopsie, wish I could go back and fix that glitch, but rather is really admonishing Moses in that scene, I think, saying, you are disabled, Moses, and I will extend divine accommodations to you in the form of Aaron. And I am still calling you to be faithful to the work. I also think that Genesis is really important, as it always is in discussions of the fall, in that when God is creating and God looks around and says it was very good. Lisa Sharon Hopper has done a lot of work on that phrase, tov me'ud, and how that's actually the betweenness is very good, not the thing itself. This idea that one individual can be very good really is the notion of perfectionism. And that's not a part of the original language or understanding of those scriptures. It's more saying that that is a type of co-flourishing, a goodness found between one another in the beloved community. That makes total sense to me in the context of disability because we know what it is to be interdependent instead of independent. And that seems like that goodness that is between us. Well, and you pick up on this at one point in your book, My Body is Not a, a Prayer Request, where you talk about this story that Jesus is telling about the banquet. And you need to go and you need to get the blind and the sick and the lame and the poor, and you need to bring them to the table and you need to do it with urgency. And I really love how you say, if you do this and if you do this with urgency, the entire social landscape begins to change. And it's there not only in the New Testament, but also you talk about a story of King David in the Old Testament. I wonder if you can talk to us about these moments when the Bible is saying, no, include those who are disabled, include those who are sick, include those who are poor with urgency. Talk to us about that. Go out quickly, Jesus says. And everyone's a biblical literist until it's anything about disability. And then it's always, oh, it's metaphorical. Jesus says in that passage in Luke 14, describing the great banquet, which is usually taken to be a picture of eschatology or new creation or heaven, that poor and disabled people are invited first. They are accommodated at an accessible table. There's no talk of cure or condemnation. There's only a glimpse of a community that welcomes poor and disabled people. Very similar to David welcoming Mephibosheth, who is disabled, and saying that he will be welcome at David's banquet always when he is king. And also similar to these glimpses that we see of the lame being a remnant and being scented on this rebuilding of new creation. All of those are really important because they're so often erased when we're talking about disability in scripture. And 
often when I have heard any of those passages preached on, it's as though disability is just forgotten about in those. Jesus's image of new creation includes us, accommodates us, celebrates us. And frankly, all of our churches should be doing the same. And how would churches change if they began to, with urgency, go quickly out and center these people at the banquet table? It would be revolutionary because churches would be able to learn from us and with us and be in community with us. I think disabled folks have so much to teach the church of what it means to be embodied and what it means to have a faith that isn't reliant on productivity or excellence or normalcy, but includes medical appointments and mess and chaos of healing. And I think the church would be so different because it wouldn't be focused on numbers or activities that exclude, but it would allow for disabled people to lead and to be their full selves, which has certainly not been the case at any church I've been a part of, and that's been true for many disabled friends as well. Well, now I want to circle back to that second part of the question. There's an old poem by Carl Sandburg where he says in the midst of the poem, the lonely find comfort when they ask themselves, perhaps could God too be lonely? And that that notion of God identifying with us in a very personal way is a comfort to those who are suffering. And I mentioned that you talk about God's self being disabled and being visualized as disabled, personified as disabled. And I'm really wanting now for you to lay that out for me and for my listeners. What do we accomplish when we say this is not just a metaphor, even God is disabled? Talk us through that. In Ezekiel and Daniel, God's throne is a chair with wheels. And that sounds a lot like a wheelchair to me. It's fiery, shimmering, turquoise, wheels within wheels, and it's radiant and beautiful wheelchair. And I think of my wheelchair as emulating the throne of the living God. Oh, that's not a wheelchair. That's just a chair with wheels. I have often been told as a clapback, which it's a little bit silly how much mental gymnastics we have to do if we are so keen on making sure God isn't disabled. The only reason for that would be if we think that disability is inherently bad or sinful, which hopefully this conversation has shown it is not. God also communicates in groans too deep to utter, which is very similar to the way that some disabled folks communicate. And what if we could see the divine in each of our disabled neighbors, regardless of how we communicate or move around in the world, or think, or process, or present? And what if we could really think about that that is emulating the living God? That would make such a difference, because it would also allow for us to not be striving for an unattainable goal of perfection that doesn't exist. When God defines God's self, God says, I am. And that's it. And we are made in that image. We are divine because we are made in that image, not because of our accolades or our resumes or what we achieve. That is good work for each of us to do, yes, but we are wholly beloved and wholly divine, regardless of what we can achieve or what we can do with our minds or our bodies. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Amy Kenny. She's a disabled scholar whose research focuses on medical and bodily themes in literature, and she is a Shakespeare lecturer at the University of California, Riverside. Today we're talking about her recent book, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, Disability Justice in the Church. Well, we've gone cosmic for one part of our conversation. And now I would like to bring it back to the personal because in the middle point of your book, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, you talk about the way in which able-bodied and disabled-bodied persons interact and some of the ways in which it can be exhausting at that point of intersection. And there are two things I want to ask you about with this, just so that my listeners can follow along with us. The first is if you could tell us a little bit about this concept of spoons And the next is the concept of mosquitoes, because both of them factor into this part of your book. So I I use the language of spoons. My my family uses the language of spoons, but maybe some of our listeners are unfamiliar with this terminology. Talk to us about spoons and spoon theory. Spoon theory is the idea that everyone who lives with chronic pain has fluctuating energy, and this is exemplified by spoons. One spoon equals one task, and you have different amount of spoons on any given day to get through a day. So this can help us understand how one day I need help getting dressed and putting my socks on, and the next day I can do it by myself. There's nothing that's happened or nothing wrong or right about any given day. It's just that I have more spoons one day than another. And it helps non-disabled people and those who are not chronically ill understand the lived reality of so many of us where we don't have the spoons and there's no real rhyme or reason, but we just can't do certain things that day. Well, and this is very helpful because it's a way of externalizing an internal reality to yourself. You know a limit that you're reaching, but if you have this language with those around you, you can use this as a way of communicating, listen, I'm all out of spoons right now, or I've got one spoon right now. And I want to say again, this is language that we use in my family here to express to one another when we're at our wits end, when we've just been taxed by certain things in the day, and we just don't have it to give in a particular interaction. And so I think that's clear for listeners. But now I want to ask you about mosquitoes, because this then takes that that communicating the internal And it's a way of talking about social interactions that I think will be very helpful for my listeners. I use mosquitoes in the book to help people understand what it is like hearing ableist slurs day in and day out, not having my access needs met all the time, going to a space and there being no accessible bathroom or no ability for me to be cared for or sit with my friends or get to interact with people. And it all adds up. The cumulative effect of hearing someone use lame as a slur and then realizing that there's no emergency evacuation plan for me and then not being able to go to the bathroom when you go to a restaurant and not being looked in the eye by people or people saying pitying and condescending things to me oh, good for you for getting out or patting me on the head like I'm a dog. All of that adds up over time. And what seems like a small mosquito bite to one person actually means that I am receiving mosquito bite after mosquito bite 
And eventually my skin is inflamed and itchy and red. And so I have an outsized reaction to one word or one lack of accommodation. And it's just a way of helping people understand how those of us who are disabled and chronically ill are dealing with so much every single day because the world is not built for us. So we are hearing, receiving, living this lack of awareness about our body minds and slurs about us that no one seems to really care that much about. And then when we attempt to say anything about it, that's often dismissed, gaslit, or ignored. Well, and to bring it back to an earlier part of our conversation, it seems that there's another maneuver that happens. And that is sometimes when someone realizes that they've been the one bite too many or they've taken your last spoon, they'll take your discomfort and suddenly recenter it to themselves and make it a drama of them trying to understand. And I think that's an important thing for my listeners to understand too. And you talk about it in your book. If you bump into someone and you jostle them, our social etiquette says, of course, you didn't mean to do that, but you make amends for it in the moment and you make sure that it's okay in the moment. And you really don't make it about you in that moment. You make it about the other person and their comfort. But there's something about disability that interrupts that social cueing. First of all, have I understood the illustration correctly? Absolutely. Imagine if you accidentally gave someone food poisoning and they told you that and you said, well, I didn't mean to poison you. (laughs) That would be suspicious and strange. And they would rightly really want to search for new friends. It's an accident when you do that or you're not intending harm, but that doesn't mean that the impact is still not really harmful. That is very strange response to say that you didn't intend harm and so therefore no harm was perpetuated. And it just centers yourself in a narrative that isn't about you. If someone has the courage to tell you that was ableist, please don't do that. Ouch, that hurt me. To center yourself in response is really selfish and strange. Well, and it seems to me that it treats the interaction as a zero-sum game where there are limited resources. And one of the things that I loved about your book, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, is that when we think about the kingdom that Jesus is talking about, it's not a zero-sum kingdom. It's not a kingdom of limitation. It's a society of abundance. And, and, And allowing ourselves to think about giving you accommodations, giving you care, making amends in a moment when you are feeling uncomfortable, takes nothing from me. And yet, Our social cueing, oftentimes our social structures, even the physical structures of our society are designed as if you gaining something means that the church or me personally or abled people have lost something. And I wonder as we're moving towards the conclusion of our conversation, if you can speak to that and how listeners can begin to unthink that zero-sum limited kind of thinking. Jesus is bad at math. It's just a couple of fish and a couple of loaves and a community, and somehow thousands of people get fed. And what if we could have that same imagination, that it's not limited resources or scarcity mindset when it comes to a life of faith. We are invited into an abundant life. And it just has not been my experience that people believe that when it comes to disability. All too often, I am told that there is not enough money, that it's too inconvenient, that it takes too much time, 
that harm wasn't intended, whether this be putting in a ramp or a sensory room or having large print handouts, or whether it means changing the language of praise songs to make sure that disabled people aren't put down. The excuses are too frequent and the math just doesn't add up. That's not kingdom math. That doesn't smell like Jesus. Well, Dr. Amy Kenny, I have to say your book, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, it was revolutionary for me. It took some things that were hazy at the edges of my thinking, brought them center, made them crystal clear for me. It gave me courage to rethink some things that I hadn't taken a close look at. And it gave me courage to begin to speak up about some things that maybe I would have been silent about before. I'm so, so very grateful for this conversation. I've enjoyed it very much, but I'm especially grateful for the time and the care and the courage that you took to speak from your own story and to put it into this book and to talk with us about it today. Thank you so much for that. Wow, thank you. Thanks for saying that. We've been speaking today with Dr. Amy Kenny. She is a disabled scholar whose research focuses on medical and bodily themes in literature. She is a Shakespeare lecturer at the University of California, Riverside, and is on the editorial board of Shakespeare Bulletin. Dr. Kenny is a member and scribe of the Freedom Road Global Writers Group hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper and has written for Sojourners Magazine about disability in the church. She serves on the Mayor's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Task Force in her home city, coordinates support for people experiencing homelessness, and is co-launching Jubilee Homes OC, a permanent supportive housing initiative in her local community. Today we've been talking about her recent book, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, Disability Justice, in the church. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kija. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.